0: chapter 6 we'll start in verse 14 romans chapter 6 starting in verse 14 for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would examine our hearts with your word this morning, that we would see you see the truth of you or that we'd understand it you would make our minds uh, give us clarity to see and understand and lord give our hearts a, a love and a joy for what you say in your word in jesus name amen well last week i said that we're all mastered by something or someone Everyone is mastered by something or someone. We're either under the law or we're under grace. There's no other option. Under the law, which means we are those who are in Adam. Our naturally born life. Those who are in Adam. Under the law. Slaves to sin and going to suffer from the penalty of our failure to keep the requirements of the law. We're in that status, or we're in the status of being under grace, which means we're in Christ through faith. We've been united to Him, and instead of instead of suffering the penalty for not keeping the law, we're now going to receive the reward for having kept the law, even though none of us did it. Jesus did on the basis of our union with him. Those are the two places you are. You're either in slavery to sin or you are in slavery to righteousness That's the only choice in life. There is no such thing as being utterly free in a libertarian sense of the word. There is no such thing as being a person who's not under the lordship of something or someone. And it's either you're under the lordship of the law and sin or you're under the lordship of grace and That's the only two options. That's what I said last week, and I talked about some of the characteristics of this master we call grace. In fact, I talked about two of them last week. I'm going to talk about two more. Last week, the first two I talked about were the characteristics of grace. This master, grace, is a promiscuous master. And people were kind of thrown a little bit by the use of that word promiscuous, But I want you to understand what I mean when I say grace is a promiscuous master. He is a master who saves whores spiritually like us. He is a master who, in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, is good to us, is kind to us, rewards us. Hear that? rewards us not only did i say he was promiscuous i also said he is a master who is powerful he's not only powerful enough to save us which he is but he is powerful enough to sanctify us that means to change us make us new and to secure us to the end grace is not a master who rejects us when we fail to meet his requirements that's what the law does Grace is a master that is kind to us, even when we're in sin. He's promiscuous and he is powerful. The other two characteristics of grace is what I'm going to talk about this morning. The first one is the practice of grace, which sounds like an interesting characteristic. But I'll talk to you about it in a I'll explain it in a minute. The second one I said last week, I really misnamed. And so I'm going to rename it last week. I called it, um, I called it the, the payment of grace. And really I'm going to rename it to, um, the present of grace. And, And here's why in no way, shape or form is grace ever a payment. And so I, I just think, even though I was going to explain to you what I mean by that, I'm just going to change the word entirely. Gift. Grace is a gift. It's present. So I want to talk about those two things, but I want you to understand that there are only two different masters under which you belong, to whom you are a slave. The law or grace. And you experience this, don't you? I want to talk about how you experience a little bit. Let me give you an example. How many of you often feel often feel like you're a failure. Often sense guilt that overwhelms you. Often feel like, you know, I'm just not good enough at this. I'm not good enough at that. I'm weak here. My mouth screwed me up there. And on and on and on we go with our list of problems. And you know how what we're feeling at that point? We're feeling what people under the law should feel. We failed to meet the law's requirements. And so we should feel overwhelmed by a sense of inadequacy. However, if you're in Christ, the law isn't your master anymore. And so that feeling while appropriate if your master is the law, is inappropriate if your master is grace. See, we experience this, don't we? We have to get straight who our master is and what he's about. Understanding that, I want to talk about these two characteristics this week. The practice of grace. Look at verse 19 of chapter 6. I'm speaking... In human terms, because of your natural limitations. I I want to stop here for a second. What's Paul saying when he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's just been talking about slavery to righteousness. And slavery to sin. And then he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Why? Slavery was not considered a good thing. Still is not considered a good thing. So when he says, Hey, you're in slavery to God and slavery to righteousness, that's going to throw people for a loop, isn't it? They're going to start to take the analogy and they're going to start to run all sorts of different directions with it. And what Paul's saying is, look, I want you to limit this analogy. What I'm talking about here. I'm speaking in human terms. I'm giving you a human example so you understand what I'm talking about when I say what it means to be in Christ and thus to be a recipient of the grace of God. And why as a recipient of the grace of God that would not encourage you to sin, just the opposite, it would encourage you to practice righteousness. I want you to understand why that is. And so I'm talking about this slavery analogy. I'm using it because you're natural human limitations. He doesn't mean by human limitations. I'm saying this because I think you're dumber than me. And he doesn't mean by human limitations. I'm saying this because somehow I've got it together and you don't. What he's saying is I'm using a human analogy because we all are darkened in our understanding. Our minds have been perverted by sin and a wrong worldview for so long. That I'm going to use a human analogy that helps you understand what I'm talking about. That's all he's saying. He says that parenthetically. That's not part of his main point. He just wants to turn to that really quick parenthetically. Now he turns to his point. Look what he says. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is an interesting verse, because what Paul says is, you used to present your members to lawlessness. By your members, he means your mind, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet. Your life used to be consumed with lawlessness. And you presented yourself to it. Here I am. Sin, which led to more sin. So, so now, as those who are in Christ, present your members, your mind, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet. Present it to righteousness. Live for God's glory. Practice something that's consistent with who your master is. What it's saying is this. Obey your new master. Obey him. But what's interesting is if we just read that verse, then we would think, okay, what I need to do is I need to get together the resolve to go out and be obedient. God is commanding me to be obedient. I need to be obedient. Yes, you need to be obedient. I need to have the resolve to be obedient. Yes, you need to have the resolve to be obedient. And what we'll do then is internalize this and decide that I'm on my own in this obedience. I can somehow accomplish this myself. And we miss the point of the text. Look at what he says. He wants us to understand the kind of master that grace is. And what he's saying is that grace is the kind of master who not only requires something of you, but he provides what he requires. Look at what he says in six three. Listen to the passives. The passives. The way these things are being done to us. Do you hear that? By a passive, when I say a verb is passive, something's being done to you. It's not something you're doing; it's being done to you. Look, look what he says, six three. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Passive. We were baptized. We didn't baptize ourselves. We were baptized into Christ Jesus. Verse four. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. That. We were buried. It was done to us. Verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We've been united with him. We didn't do it. That was done to us. Passive. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present. Here's a command. Don't do this. Look what he goes on and says. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Hear that? Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Pass has been done to you. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 17. Verse 17. But thanks be to God. What's he thanking God for? That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. God be thanked because you have changed. God did it. Verse 18. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Passive again. You've been set free. Who sets themselves free from slavery? No one, you've been set free by God, have become a slave to righteous. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, hear that? Again, it's been done to you. This master grace is providing what he's requiring. He's saying to you, be slaves of God because you are slaves of God. Hear what Paul's saying to you? Do it because it's been done for you. Listen to logic. Just verse 13 and 14. Listen to Paul's logic. Look at 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Present yourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. And look what he says in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Don't be a slave to sin. Why? Because sin isn't your slave master. Don't practice sin because you won't practice sin. Isn't that interesting logic? Here's what John Piper says. This a pastor in Minneapolis. He says this. This is a striking way that New Testament ethics is structured. Don't let sin master you Because sin is not going to master you. If that strikes us as strange, which it does at first, it's because we come to the Bible with our man centered bias towards self determination. In other words, we come with the bias that if the Bible tells us to make a choice, a choice like don't present your members to sin, then in the moment of that choice, We, not God, have the final say. And if you come with that bias, you come with the bias that genuine, responsible choice means ultimate self-determination. The connection between verses 13 and 14 will probably make no sense. Don't yield to sin because sin will not be master over you. But if you learn from Scripture to see the sovereignty of God. And the real responsibility of man in such a way that God is ultimate and decisive. Then this is the way you will learn to talk about the choices of the Christian life. I choose not to let sin reign in my body because God is at work in me and will not let sin reign in my body. Paul teaches us elsewhere. Philippians chapter 2, turn there quickly. Keep your hand at Romans 6. Look at Philippians 2. Look at verse 12. and 13 Therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling here's what you do work out your salvation with fear and trembling now verse 13 four here's the explanation four is it, it is god who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Hear that? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God's at work in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Do it because God's done it and He's doing it. Peter says the same thing. Turn to First Peter. First Peter chapter 4. First Peter comes after James, which comes after Hebrews before first John and Revelation and all that, so it's back towards the back there. First Peter chapter four. Listen to what Peter says. Whoever speaks, he's talking about the use of the gifts that God's given us. And he's saying this contextually, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Did you guys hear that? Serve by the strength that God supplies in order that why does God tell you to serve and then supply you the strength to do it? Why does God tell you not to sin, but to instead offer yourselves to righteousness and then say to you, I have freed you from slavery to that. I will empower you to live righteously. Why? Look what he says. In order that in everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ." To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that God receives the glory. Not man. God. That's why. Here's the point. Grace is a master that demands you not to present your life to sin, but to righteousness. And then is the master that provides you the power to do so. Hear that? In fact, the main purpose of Romans chapter 6 is to show that the grace that justifies us, that brings us forgiveness, and says that we're declared righteous, that same grace that justifies us is the grace that. Sanctifies us, makes us holy. Second characteristic, the present of grace. The present of grace. This present as in gift. Grace is a master who gives us a great present or gift. He gives us an undeserved unmerited gift look at romans chapter 6 again and look at verse 20 i want you to hear the logic of paul's argument look at verse 20 when you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness here he's telling the church at rome when you were slaves to sin you were free in regard to righteousness He's not saying that they were free in the sense that they had never done anything righteous. Not saying that what he's saying is that they were free with respect to righteousness. They were not under the rule or the reign of righteousness. They were under the rule and reign of sin and the law. They were slaves of sin. And what a demeaning, destructive and lying Master, sin is. Sin promises us life, doesn't it? Promises us life and delivers to us death. Sin never promises bad things to us, does it? It always promises us something we think we want. And it always delivers us a result that is horrific. Always. Always. It's a lying master. You know, for several years, I professed faith in Christ. But I had no interest in living with him as my master and Lord. None. I remember I used to think to myself, this is especially in high school. I used to think to myself. When I get older. And my life is pretty much over anyway. Like when I'm 25. <laughs> you know. When that happens, then I'll start walking with the Lord. Because somehow I thought sin promised me life. That if I started walking with the Lord, would be taken from me. That somehow walking with Jesus was going to bring me death. But it's sin that does. It's sin that brings death to me. And I didn't know that seemed like sin seemed like it looked so good obedience and righteousness and godliness looked so constraining and boring and dead when i was a youth pastor my high school students understood this they got this they wanted to get righteous when they were older once they got married And life was over anyway. That's what they thought. I'm serious. Once they had children, I heard it from them all the time. Once you have kids, that's definitely the death knell. Maybe in their minds, I could get married and we could still have a good time. And then as soon as we have kids, might as well wrap it up. It's all gotten boring and dead now. So now I can live for God. Because I'm not missing out on any of the good stuff anymore. I mean, that's what they really thought. I bet some of you out there think that. Some of you still aren't walking with the Lord. You haven't recognized yet that your life is wasted. And, uh, right? That it's over, all the fun ended. And you're you're still thinking that somehow sin, this master that seems to offer you life, is a good master. Somehow you still believe that. But sin's a liar, and it mocks us, and it deceives us. that it mocks us, and it deceives us. look at romans six twenty one but what fruit this is what Paul is saying. what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed, at what time, the time in which you were in slavery to sin? What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? The end of those things is death. What fruit were you getting when you were giving yourself over to sin? Really, what, what fruit was it bearing? What were you reaping as a result of what you were sowing? It was rotten fruit, wasn't it? It was what our small group study, and if you're not in a small group, I encourage you to get in one. It's what our small group study calls what? Thorns. Right? Thorns. It's the kind of fruit that as a believer, you're now ashamed of. Hear what Paul says? What fruit were you getting at the time for doing the things which you are now ashamed? ashamed of you weren't ashamed then then it seemed pretty cool it was fun it was accomplishing what i thought needed to be accomplished in life wasn't that ashamed of it now i'm ashamed of it for example when you were in slavery to your passions and you were financially irresponsible And you spent to gratify your desires. What fruit were you getting from that? Slavery to debt, weren't you? It seemed to promise so much when you pulled out that credit card to buy that thing you just had to have. And it wrecked you. And it mocks you still. Every time you get that stupid bill. From the credit card company. You swear there are people who send it to you. That are mocking you as they send it out. You drink too much. Alcohol tasted good. And it felt good. When it. Got you intoxicated. And then it mocked you. Because eventually. It controlled you. You were sexually immoral. Immoral. Either physically or um, visually. And eventually that wrecked your marriage, wrecked you personally, ruined you from ministry, or at least the thought that you could never be in ministry again because you think somehow that fornication overcomes justification. And it wrecked you. You would satisfy your pride with angry outbursts. Or through sarcastic remarks. Or through cutting off relationships. What kind of fruit did that bear for you? You pursued success like it was all satisfying. And it disappointed you bitterly. You gossiped. Or listen to gossip because it tickled your ears and made you feel better about yourself. And it wrecked relationships. It bore really nasty fruit. The sin didn't free you, it destroyed you. Being free from righteousness didn't give you life. In fact, it bore terrible fruit in your life whose end is death. And that death is eternal, spiritual death. It both has temporal implications and eternal implications. However, sin and law are not our master. If you're in Christ's not your master. Grace is. Look at verse 22. And our new master gives us good fruit. Start with, but now. You hear that? You love it. Whenever Paul's saying something was wrecking your life, and then he turns the next phrase and says, but now, you're going, yes, here it comes. Here comes the good news. Like in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, when he says, You were by nature children of wrath. And you're going, no. And he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with him. But now, you were slaves of sin, and the end of those things is death. But now, now that you have been set free from sin, do you hear that? Sin is no longer your master. If you're in Christ, you've been set free by Christ. You've been set free. If the son makes you free, you are free indeed. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's end, eternal life. Now, now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, do you hear that? Sin is no longer your master. God is. Grace is. Paul personifies essentially grace and righteousness. He gives them a persona, right? And by them, when he says grace is your master, he means God is our master. Jesus Christ is our master. And when God is our master, then we also bear fruit. But unlike the thorns that we bore, we now bear good fruit. We bear good fruit. And it leads to progressive sanctification. A lot of people are not familiar with this word, progressive sanctification. I say this term and most of you your eyes start to glaze over here. Here's the point. Progressive sanctification is the idea that you are increasingly growing in holiness, increasingly growing in holiness, in righteousness. And, and it looks hopefully more like stock market charts from the past than from the last week <laughs> If your progressive growth looks more like the stock market chart from the last week. You probably need to come and meet with me after the service. But hopefully. If you trace the stock market from like the 19, even from before the Great Depression, if you trace it, it just steadily moves up, doesn't it? It's got drops. But even with, with all the drops, it keeps growing, right? That is how you grow in Christ's. God produces fruit in you, which leads to sanctification and you progressively grow. Sometimes you have down weeks. Hopefully you never have any that spiked down as far as the market spiked down in the last week and a half because those weeks are really depressing. But it happens, doesn't it? God is our master and he produces good fruit in us, which leads to progressive sanctification and progressive sanctification Leads to eternal life. And you're going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't aren't you saying that that somehow you work your way into salvation? No, and I'll deal with that in just a second. But I want you to hear this. Because he says an important phrase here when he says this statement here. But now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. The fruit you get really ought to be translated. I think the fruit you have And it's important because what he's saying is it's guaranteed. It's given to you. Get is okay because it still gets the idea that it's given to you. God works this in you. You don't bear the fruit on your own. Martin Lloyd-Jones Said that there's no question that Christians, and by the way, Martin Lloyd Jones is a twentieth century preacher in Great Britain, one of the greatest preachers of the twentieth century, made this comment there's no question that Christians must bear fruit. In fact, he talks about the only categories in the Bible are bearing fruit, bearing much fruit, bearing more fruit. There's three choices you're either bearing fruit, you're bearing more fruit, or you're bearing much fruit. That's it. There's no such thing as a barren Christian tree. When a tree bears no good fruit, but only thorns and thistles, it's cursed by God, not blessed by God. And a tree that is God's produces good fruit. It must by its very nature. I want you to hear this. We, as unbelievers, were a bad tree. This is how our small group study puts it. We were a bad tree with a bad root. A wicked heart. And we bore bad fruit, thorns and thistles. And it just became an ever-increasing cycle of killing ourselves, essentially, with sin. The cross is the second tree that's talked about in our small group curriculum, where it says that Jesus died on a tree. And he paid the penalty for our sin. And on that tree, he also if we believe in him made us a new creation in Christ, thus we have a third tree in the curriculum, and the third tree is a good tree with a good root that bears good fruit. And it's all because of the cross. In fact, John 15 says this, So turn there, keep your hand at Romans six and turn there really quickly to John 15. I want you to hear what Jesus says about this and why it's necessary that Christians bear good fruit. Why is there no such thing as a Christian who is fruitless? John fifteen. I. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine. You hear Jesus saying that. I am the true vine. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I want you to hear this. Because it's really important. My kids actually asked me about this analogy. Said We were reading John 15 and they asked me about the vine and the branches. And so I took them out to a grapevine. And I showed them a grapevine. I asked them, "What, what part of this vine this plant, this grapevine, what part of it provides life? The vine does, doesn't it? Where does the vine go? If you follow the vine, it goes back to the ground, into the roots. What about the branches? The branches shoot off of the vine. Who provides the life? The vine does who then provides the fruit the vine does if the vine is good the branches that are in the vine will produce fruit the question is whether they'll produce some fruit more fruit or much fruit why because the vine is good do you hear that the vine is good Jesus is the vine. He's the source of life and he is the source of fruit that is produced from that vine. If you break the branch off, what happens to the branch? It dies. It doesn't produce any fruit. Why? Because it got its life and the fruit that it produced from the vine. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You're no longer slaves of sin. You're now slaves of righteousness. And if slaves of righteousness, you will, as you present your members to righteousness, bear much fruit, which leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That's the point Paul's making. The point is, Not, hear this, the point is not that you earn eternal life. For the next verse certainly rules that out, doesn't it? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't earn free gifts. That would be, by definition, the opposite of a free gift. What it means is this while God saves me, as Billy Graham used to love to have the song played at the end, just as I am. While God saves me just as I am, he does not leave me there. Thank God he doesn't. God works in me the fruit of one who is saved so that I grow in sanctification When I'm saved, I become a new creation with a new master and a new destination. Everything has changed. He doesn't just save me. He preserves me by working holiness in me. Justification. I want you to hear this. Justification are both necessary to eternal and sanctification. Justification, sanctification are both necessary to eternal life. They're both necessary to eternal life. Justification is the necessary condition by which you receive eternal life. Sanctification is the necessary consequence of your salvation. You hear that? When you you want eternal life, justification is the condition that is necessary to receive it. Sanctification is the consequence that is necessary. As a result of your justification, the eternal life you had, you received. Th- these two can't be split up the way we often split them up in Christianity. This kind of picture of the Christian, the person who professes faith but has no fruit, doesn't desire to go to church, is involved in a church, isn't growing at all, is completely enslaved to their sin, pictures nowhere in the Bible. God isn't that cruel of a master. Grace is not a cruel enough master to save you and leave you in sin and in slavery to it. If you claim to have the legal basis for salvation but lack the moral and transformative testimony of salvation, you're really not a Christian. Fruit is not optional because Jesus is the vine. And if you're in the vine, you're going to bear fruit. Paul wraps up his discussion on the character of grace as our master with this statement. Look what he says in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here's the great summary of the two masters. You ready? The great summary of these two masters you can be in under. You can be under the master of sin and law and law promise. Sin and law promises life, but the payment of it is death. It's the wages that this master pays. Sin and law, in other words, are the kind of master that pay their slaves what they've earned. Hear that? Sin and law are the masters that pay what you and I have earned which is death, eternal separation from God. That's why Paul calls it a wage. It's something you've earned. It's your payment. Grace is a master who never pays his slaves what they've earned. You know the distinction between these two masters? Sin always pays what we deserve. Grace never Pays what we deserve that 's the difference between that slave master and that difference is monumental it's monumental. Grace is a master that never pays what we deserve. In fact, he gives us a present or a gift that we do not deserve. It says this it's a free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why does he give us that gift? Doesn't it seem unjust that if we've earned these wages, which are death, that we receive a gift of eternal life? Doesn't that seem unjust? That we receive reward when we haven't earned that at all? That seems unjust to me. I don't know about to you. Do you know why it's not unjust? It is not unjust because Jesus earned the reward that we're getting. You hear that? Because we're in Christ. God doesn't reward me in and of myself. God rewards me in Christ. And Christ was under the law, born as one under the law, and kept the law perfectly so that I could be redeemed. You hear that? He earned it, and I receive it as a free gift because I'm in him. So who's your master? And I guess it's a question. Who is your master? Is your master sin and law? Or is your master grace? Is your master Jesus Christ? If your master is sin and law, then you will get what you deserve. It will bear rotten fruit in your life for the duration of your life. And it will lead to death, which is eternal conscious torment in hell. Hear that? That's what that master pays. Eternal conscious torment in hell. Where the worm does not die. Right? Forever. Imagine your deepest depression and your greatest suffering, your greatest feeling of loneliness and abandonment and failure and guilt and pain. And remove every ounce of grace and kindness and friendship and intensify that and add the wrath of God and you have hell for eternity. Complete and total hopelessness. That's what the master sin pays. The master grace gives eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. The exact opposite. A gift of joy and fellowship and love. A joy so great that it is eternally increasing. Hear that? God is giving to you eternally. Giving and giving and giving. And ever increasing your joy for eternity without stopping, without ceasing, never relenting from doing good to you. That's a completely different master. A master who saves me from what I deserve and gives me unrelenting, eternal, increasing joy is not a master who encourages me to sin. When I hear about that master, I want to live for him righteously. I want to present my members to righteousness, not to sin. That's Paul's answer to the question, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? If grace, you know, abounds, shouldn't we sin so that grace would abound even more? If we're not under law, then why not sin? Paul's answer is, you must not understand who your master is. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel and what it provides for us. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his ongoing, continuous, gracious intercession on our behalf. Thank you that he not only died on the cross for our sins, thus taking... From us the penalty uh, for not keeping the law, Lord, that He lived righteously for us. Thus, we get credited with His righteousness. Thank you for that. We thank you that He secures us, that He keeps us, that He is forever gracious to us. May we rejoice in Him and be glad in Jesus' name, Amen. We're gonna pass out communion here at the.